So the Christmas story, what will be in and around over the next few weeks, the story of the birth of Jesus, actually begins as not a, not a story of a birth, but, a, but an engagement story, the engagement of Mary and, and Joseph. I get the privilege of, of doing a lot of weddings and, uh, and seeing people make a covenant commitment of marriage is just, it's a humbling thing. I love weddings, I love going to weddings, I love officiating weddings, to, to see people from, from different backgrounds, probably very different ideologies, sitting together focused on the hope that there are some things that never have to end, that there's a loving commitment that can be made that can reflect beauty and goodness in this world. I think it's a glimpse of the kingdom that we don't get that often. And so I uh, love weddings, but as I prepare uh, couples and, and walk with them through the, the, the time leading up to, their engagement time up to the wedding, I, I sit with them, and one of the things I always ask them is to tell me their, their proposal story because uh, they're always amazing. I am so impressed with the planning, and, um, and, and so I hear these stories of, you know, they'll sit and it's like, oh, you know, it's no big deal. And I'm like, oh, tell me, tell me. I'd love to hear about it. It's like, oh, you know, it wasn't a big deal. We just went out to the beach and, and it was still, still before the sun rose. And right as the sun peeked over the ocean, he dropped to one knee to signify this new life, a new beginning that we're going to have together. And then I realized, oh my gosh, this is the very moment where we met four years ago by chance as you were playing Frisbee on the beach and we bumped into each other. And then as I said, yes, the family from all over the world that had been hiding under the bushes comes out and we all celebrate together and then the mariachi band came from somewhere and they started playing at last by Etta James and then an F-14 flyover happened and it wasn't that big of a deal though and I'm like man that's pretty impressive um, nobody's pulled off the mariachi thing yet so if you're getting ready to get engaged you're welcome um, <laughs> part of why I ask that question is because I want to know kind of what makes the couples tick but another reason is because it's so different than my proposal story, uh, and, uh, and I'll share that with you now. Some of you know this story, uh, but I have a strict only tell a story like this once a year, and the year's almost over. So uh, here, here it goes. Abby and I got engaged uh, on the 4th of July of the year 2000. That summer, Abby had spent the summer working at a children's home uh, an orphanage in Guatemala, and I was down for a week of that summer, but there was a lot of separation there, and we'd been dating, and I just realized pretty quickly in that summer, I didn't want to miss any adventures with her. I just wanted to be beside her uh, through all the adventures, and so the plan was, uh, she, when she was getting home, when she stepped off the plane, this is back when you could go all the way to the gate uh, before 9-11, and so you could, you could go through security, and, and, just, and you could have signs and stuff as people got off the planes, and so the, the plan was, as soon as she stepped off the plane, I was going to ask her to marry me, to, to signify, like, hey, don't, I, I don't want you going on adventures without me. I want to be beside you and in support of you and in and, and support of each other. And so I talked to Abby's mom about this plan, and she was so excited about it and so happy to help it happen, and, and the whole family was going to go and would be there, and it would be this special thing. But I hadn't had the chance or at least taken the opportunity to talk to Abby's dad to ask him for his blessing uh, for, for me to ask Abby to marry me. And so Abby's mom was like, don't worry about it. Here's what we'll do. I'll take the rest of the family through security, and then you and Steve, Abby's dad, can, can hang back. And you'll go through security, just the two of you. And then in the walk from security to the gate, you can have the conversation, and it'll be fresh, and then it'll be this wonderful, exciting thing. And I was like, that's a brilliant plan. I'm so glad you're going to be my mother-in-law. And so she lived up to her end of the deal and went and, and took the rest of the family, and it was me and Abby's dad. And Abby's dad goes through security, no problem, grabbing, grabbing his stuff. And I, you know, do the thing you do. You put all the things in, in the little metal detector thing, and you walk through. 
And so I walk through it, beep, 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 beep. I'm like, oh gosh, that's, what could it be? Uh, no, no, no belt, nothing like that. And so I, I couldn't quite figure it out. Uh, and so they say, well, we're going to have to wand you. And I was like, sure, of course. That seems like protocol. It seems reasonable. And so uh, this is the year 2000, and I knew this was a special day, and I was going to be engaged. And so I had my sweetest pair of cargo pants on, so there's a lot of pockets to check. And so they start, you know, at the normal ones, and then all the, you know, the seven or eight more that go down here. And uh, so they got to about here, and it's like, beep, 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 and it's like, there's something in your pocket. That's the moment I realized, you know what's interesting about rings that are precious metal? They don't go off to a metal detector, but you know what does? A ring box that has a metal band around it. So my father-in-law, or at least my, my hoped father-in-law, was standing there. I hadn't talked to him about this engagement. He had no idea this was coming. The TSA agent says nicely, can you please take that out of your pocket, sir? I have two options at this point. The first option is to do what the TSA agent asked, which is like what you should do, right? The second option is what I chose, and I said sheepishly, no which is not what you do. So an incident begins in the airport. Two other TSA agents come over. Abby's dad still standing right there. Me, two TSA, three TSA agents now. Can you please take that out of your pocket? I actually, this actually happened in my mind. I was like, if I run, is it possible that I could time it where she gets off the plane, I ask her to marry me before they arrest me, and I actually pull this thing off? The cooler heads prevailed, and I take the ring out of the pocket, and they go, oh, oh, oh. And so they kind of figured it out, and I put it back, and I was so embarrassed. I was sweating. I was red in the face. Uh, I was so embarrassed that I didn't say anything to Abby's dad. I just kind of walked kind of like this all the way down. And uh, so we get down. Abby's mom's there. She's got this whole scene set for how the picture's going to work. She's arranged people by height, and it's all. Abby gets off the plane. Yay, signs, hugs, kisses. Hey, let's take a photo. We take a photo. Abby's mom gives me the look like, this would be a good time. And I give her the look like, I don't know if I could do this. And she gives me the look like, you're blowing this really cool moment. And I'm like, I know. Um, and uh, so I was so, uh, so kind of torn up about the whole thing that I, I, just, I, I just said, no, I can't do it. We took 170 photos. Abby's mom tried to prolong it for a while, but like the airport was closing and they were like, you have to leave. Um, so I got myself together later and in the uh, very romantic setting of my in-law's basement, I asked Abby to marry me later that night. The next day, I talked to Abby's dad, apologized for it not going the way I wanted to. He was very gracious. And still to this day, is like, I had no idea what was going on. I was like, you're a liar, but I love you for it. Um, <laughs> so compared to that really not perfect proposal, the 11-month engagement that we had before our wedding was, was smooth sailing. What Matthew chapter 1 does is drops us into a, an engagement that is not going smooth sailing. It's anything but uneventful. And what Matthew does is he puts us into the, into the perspective, into the mind, into the events surrounding Joseph. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Joseph and his story. And the hope is, again, that, that we walk a little bit in his shoes. Because I think what he experienced can teach us a lot about how we should engage the coming of Jesus as well. And so what we're going to see, I'll just go ahead and tell you up front, what we're going to see is that Joseph didn't have all the information he would ever need, but he did have enough information to move forward. It's going to be really important for us as we walk through this. And this happens all the time to us. Uh, we, we are in positions and situations where we don't have all the information, but we have enough information to move forward. Let me give you a couple examples. So this morning when you got up, you had your coffee, had your breakfast, got ready for church, went out to your car, turned your ignition in, in your car and, and drove off. You didn't even think about the process of turning the key, but you didn't know the car was going to start. You just assumed that it would because you have a history and knowledge that says the car's probably going to start when I turn the key. That is 
unless you're me and your battery dies every six days. Um, but in general, you, you have trust built up that that's gonna work. When I asked Abby to marry me, I didn't have all the information. I didn't know everything I needed to know about how to be a good husband, still don't. Didn't know how everything was, was gonna work out. I just knew that Abby was the person I wanted to walk beside for my life. I just knew that piece of information. We do this with our professions. When I was a freshman in college, I declared as an architecture major. I didn't know how everything was gonna work out or what my life would look like exactly, obviously, um, but, but, but I knew enough to move forward and had trust and hope that it, that it would move in the right direction. We do this when we have kids as well. We don't know how to be perfect parents. We don't know how everything's gonna work out for our children, but we have enough information to move forward and hope and trust and, and move forward accordingly. We call these things calculated risks, but in fact, they're just faith. So the question is, what do we put our faith in? So for our time today, we're gonna, we're gonna dig into an invitation that Joseph receives from God, and it's actually an invitation that we receive as well, and it has a lot to do with faith. Here's the invitation that Joseph receives that all of us in this room receive as well. The invitation is to follow God with what we know rather than wait to follow him until we know everything. Follow him with what we know rather than wait to follow him until we know everything. So with that in mind, let's read Matthew chapter one. It's in your bulletin, uh, starting in verse 18. If you have your Bible, you can follow along as well, or you can just listen. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home to be your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. He didn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to the son, and he gave him the name Jesus. We actually don't have a lot of information about Joseph. So doing a, a sermon on Joseph and through his perspective actually is a little bit difficult to do. He's a pretty enigmatic figure in the scriptures. We have Matthew's account here. We have a couple of other things. In Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, which was a Jewish uh, custom. And we know that they give an offering that is in line with uh, being the poorest of the poor. It only would have been acceptable to give this offering if you were the poorest of the poor. So we know that he was a tradesman, not well off, not very influential in his community. In Matthew 13, a little later in the story, uh, we learn a little bit more about Joseph. We learn that he's a carpenter. Jesus is in his hometown as an adult in Matthew 13, and the town folk are confused because of what Jesus is saying and what he's, and what he's doing and what he's claiming. And their response is, isn't this the carpenter's son? Basically, the logic of the people was Jesus can't be who he said he was because Joseph isn't important enough. So those pieces of information along with these verses is really all we have about Joseph. Here's why that's significant. If you find yourself today or any day feeling not like the lead character, but more like a supporting cast in God's story, don't look down on that. 
The story of Joseph reminds us that significance doesn't come from a long biography, but from faithfulness to the part you play. So we don't know much about Joseph, but what we do learn from Matthew here is noteworthy. The angel of the Lord calls Joseph the son of David. So that means Joseph was in the line of the King David. He was a great, 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 so on, grandson of David, and before that, Abraham. So we know that Joseph is in the special line of family that God was somehow going to use in a unique way to bring about his salvation to the world. We know from verse 19 that Joseph was faithful to the law, or another translation is he was a righteous man. Essentially, what that means, it's Jewish shorthand in, in, in literature of the day to state that, that people recognized that he was devout to God. So Joseph followed God, he knew God, he trusted God, and people recognized that because it showed up in his actions. So Joseph, if he was devout to God, that would mean he would know the rest of God's story. He was very, very versed in the scripture. He knew what God was up to in the rest of the story, and he would have processed anything he was experiencing through the rest of God's story. It was never just an isolated event that was going on. He always knew whatever was happening to him had to be part of what God was up to. That is really key to understand what Joseph does. So Joseph, it's pretty clear from the text, believes that Mary hasn't been faithful. He hasn't been faithful to their engagement, which in that day was a legal binding document of, of marriage. And then now she's, she's pregnant with a child that's not his. And any reasonable thinking person would have believed the same thing. She hasn't been faithful to her vow. And the law that he was devout to, that he was faithful to, in Deuteronomy said that this unfaithfulness in marriage was legal grounds for divorce. And a divorce could be a very public thing in that day. Think uh, later in the story when Jesus is, is walking and they bring the adulterous woman in front of him and lay him down and, and ask Jesus, what should we do with this woman? Think that. That was a pretty common episode on how uh, unfaithfulness was treated in the community. So a public divorce would have been very common. A private divorce would have been very different. Would have been really surprising. Here's why. Nazareth, where Joseph was from, was this strongly nationalist Galilean city. Every action of the people of this city would have been framed and shaped by the Old Testament law. Their, their actions, their habits, their thoughts, all shaped by Old Testament law. So here's what that means. That means if this scandal comes into the town of Nazareth, it's not just for Mary and Joseph to deal with. It's not just scandalous for them. In fact, you're inviting the judgment of God on the whole city if you bring that type of scandal to our town. So this wouldn't have been uh, met with indifference. It would have been met with hatred. And Joseph would have been at the center of it. So he's hurt, he's shocked like any person would be. And so he decides to divorce Mary, just, just end it. But there's a, great, a glimpse of grace even in this, and this is really important. Even in the decision to divorce Mary because of what he believed was going on, there's a glimpse of grace here and shows something about Joseph. The law said he had the freedom to publicly divorce Mary for her supposed actions, and no one would have batted an eye. In fact, it would have kind of removed him from any thought of guilt or any rumor of guilt, but Mary would have been ostracized. She would have been publicly ridiculed. She possibly would have been put to death. And he isn't willing to do that to her. So even though he's hurt, he decides to divorce her quietly. He doesn't strike blow for emotional blow. 
So for Joseph, being a righteous man, being a man that follows after God, it didn't mean publicly shaming or, or, or hurting anyone that falls short or hurts him. It wasn't saying like, hey, I'm righteous and you're not, so I'm gonna put you up to be, to be ostracized and ridiculed. No, for him, being a righteous man meant displaying God's character. It meant showing grace and kindness, even if it meant ridicule for him. Because him doing this privately meant the rumors would continue. So the question is, do we interpret being right with God, being righteous, being devout to God the same way? Do we display devoutness to God by extending grace and love, even if it means ridicule for us? But as we come to find out, things aren't all as they seem. The angel visits Joseph, which is always shocking, always surprising. Anytime it happens in the Old Testament and the New Testament, people are freaked out because it's freaky when an angel shows up. That's why angels always say, don't be afraid. That's like the first thing they say, don't be afraid. I think, one, because they're angels and they know like, hey, we get it, we're angels. And so uh, don't be afraid because it's all good. Uh, but secondly, they say this, I think, every time because every time it's followed by them saying, God is inviting you to do something significant, and it's going to take a lot of trust, so don't be afraid. So the angel essentially says this to Joseph. Hey, what I'm about to tell you is probably going to freak you out. Don't freak out, which is totally like how my kids talk to me. Sometimes they'll come in and be like, hey, uh, something happened. Don't freak out. And I was like, I can't make that promise until you tell me what happened, Right? What I'm gonna tell you is probably gonna freak you out. Don't freak out. Take Mary as your wife. I'm sure Joseph was like, what? And then there's like this parting shot. I imagine the angel's like on, the, on his way out, like, hey, take Mary as your wife. Oh, also, uh, she didn't cheat on you. This thing is, it's the Holy Spirit doing something. Okay, bye. And Joseph's like, what? What is going on? This is crazy. Like, this is, this is any reasonable person would have said, no way. Like, this is too much. But remember, he was a righteous man. He was a man who knew God and followed him and trusted him and his life and his actions displayed it. He was asked to do something ridiculous, but the person that asked was significant. Joseph has this really wise, graceful plan. Don't shame anyone, show grace and love and move on. So what does he do? Verse 24, when he awoke, he did what the angel told him to do and he took Mary as his wife. Why would he do that? Well, because of what had happened in the past, because of his past experience, because of the trust that he'd built up over time, the two names that Matthew says here in this account are significant. The first is Jesus. The second, Emmanuel. We'll unpack those a little bit. It's important to know, though, that the names don't change the circumstance. What, what the angel says, what Matthew says about who Jesus is, it does not change the circumstance. The circumstance is still unbelievably challenging. But they do change how he would respond because he knows the one who is asking. Verse 21, the angel says, name the child Jesus, which means the Lord saves. In Hebrew, this is uh, Yeshua, Joshua, so Joshua, Josh, Jesus, all, all the same root name. Joshua, if you remember him, he was the one that took the Israelites into the promised land after Moses had passed and they'd wandered in the desert. He's the one that finished the job, took people into freedom. 
And the angel says, you name him Jesus because he'll save the people from their sins. He'll lead anybody who's willing to freedom from their sins, just like Joshua did in the Old Testament. Here's what that means for you. No matter where you've gone, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've left undone, it can be forgiven for one reason and one reason only, because Jesus came. He came in the world to take away the sin and the pain and the death so that we don't have to be lost to sin and pain and death. He's the one that takes us to freedom. Verse 23, as he grows, Matthew says, they'll call the child Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's from an earlier part of God's story, the prophet Isaiah, who talked about this time when God would show up again. It was a time when, when God's people were suffering, and, and Isaiah says, please don't forget, God is true to his word. He will show up again. And what Matthew is saying is, you'll know it's happening through this child. The Lord saves and God with us. That was enough to move forward. That's all Joseph needed. The Lord saves and God is with us. The name don't change the circumstances, the impossible circumstances. Raising a kid that, that no one believes is your own in a sense isn't with a woman who everyone believes is, is unfaithful because she became pregnant before she was married in a culture that says she's probably not even worth living at this point. She doesn't deserve life. Joseph says yes anyway, not because he knew all the answers, not because he knew how it would all work out, not because it was the easiest option, but he knew the answer to the most important question. Is God worth trusting? Yes. That's why he got up and said to Mary, we'll do this together. Impossible circumstance or not. It didn't take away the circumstance. It didn't even take away probably the fear of, of, of what they might experience, but it was enough to move forward. There's a lady named uh, Regina Dugan. She is the director of, or former director of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, because acronyms are cool and that name is terrible. Um, but they developed some really extraordinary things. Um, a, a robotic hummingbird, which I have no idea what that's good for, but it's awesome. Uh, the, the hand, uh, the, the prosthetic hand that moves with, by thought um, that's, that you're starting to see more, they developed that, and also um, the internet. So uh, they've developed some pretty awesome things, and so she was doing a TED Talk that I watched uh, at some point, and I went back to it this week, and, and uh, she, she said this, um, she asked this question, what would you attempt if you knew you couldn't fail? And what she said was, the question isn't as much uh, about what you would do or what you wouldn't do, it's it's what helps you realize that, that fear of failure actually constrains us. That we believe if, if, if we'll fail, it'll keep us from attempting great things. And she says, when we stop attempting great things, she said this, life gets dull, amazing things stop happening. Sure, good things happen, but amazing things stop happening. So I have a question for you. What are you doing right now that's impossible without God? If the answer is nothing, then my guess is it's probably time to consider that there's something you need to say yes to. And what keeps us from saying yes to these impossible things, these, these beautiful things, these life-changing, world-changing things, these things that are impossible without God, I think is because we pursue the wrong type of certainty 
and we fear moving forward unless we have that specific type of certainty. We look for certainty that our plans are gonna work out the way we intend, rather than looking for certainty in the God who says, I'll work all things for the good. The former puts us at the center and it absolutely kills faith. The latter allows us to move forward in faith with a God who is always true to his character. So here's my contention. Certainty in our plans is a lesser goal than clarity of God's character. Certainty in our plans is a lesser goal than clarity of God's character. I had a, a conversation uh, with a friend a few years ago, and he, was, and he was freaking out because he was gonna be a dad for the first time. And, uh, and so he, he'd, had, he'd come from a rough upbringing. He was like, I don't have any idea how to be a good dad. And I'm freaking out because I just don't know. I don't know how to do it. And I don't think I'm gonna be a good dad. And I don't wanna bring a child into the world. And I've, you know, it's already happening, but I'm not ready for it. And, and I looked at him and I gave a completely unsubstantiated statistic. Um, I'll admit that. But I actually, I've come to find that I, that I believe this unsubstantiated statistic very much. I looked at him and I said, look, 90% of being a good dad is wanting to be a good dad. Because if you wake up in the morning and you want to be a good dad, you'll put the work in. You'll sacrifice. You'll read the book. You'll get in the relationship with the good dad who can teach you how to be a good dad. You'll show up early and you'll stay late for your kids. 90% of wanting to be a good dad is waking up wanting, or 90% of being a good dad is wanting to be a good dad, waking up and saying, I want this today. I believe the same thing holds true for trusting God. 90% of trusting God is wanting to trust God. It won't get you all the way there, just like parenting. Being a good dad, it doesn't get you all the way there. There can still be things that come in the way and, and you'll be overwhelmed at times, but it gets you a long way there. 90% of trusting God is wanting to trust God. It won't get you all the way. There'll be circumstances that come into your life. There'll be disappointments. There'll be things that are confusing and those are really, really hard to trust God through. They always will be. But 90% of it is wanting it. Because if you wake up in the morning and you want to trust God, you'll put the work in. You'll read the book, you'll go to the seminar, you'll get in the relationship with the friend who's trusted God for longer than you've been alive and you'll say, gosh, how do you get through all of these things? 90% of, of trusting God is wanting to trust God. Joseph didn't have all the information. He didn't know how it was gonna turn out. He didn't know what ridicule he was gonna face. He didn't even know how difficult it was gonna get. A couple of verses later, they end up in Egypt because they have to flee for their lives. But he wanted to trust God. That's what got him out of the seat to go to Mary. It wasn't having all the information. It wasn't having a comprehensive plan. It wasn't the pursuit of the easiest path, which are oftentimes things that motivate us to move. No, he wanted to trust God. That's why he moved. And that's what should move us as well. When I was preparing for this, I was, I was trying to think of somebody that, that maybe pursues impossible things or what I consider to be impossible things without God. And, and I thought of my friend, Eddie Koffoltz, who used to be on staff here at Summit. He worked over at the Herndon campus and, and led that campus there for a while until three or four years ago, he joined International Justice Mission, IJM. They're the, the largest anti-slave organization in the world. And he popped in my mind because that seems, seems like such hard work, uh, freeing slaves. And so I, I asked him, I sent him a text, and I was like, how often do you guys succeed? I mean, when you, when you set up a shop and, in, a, in, a, in a location and you start to do these, these rescue missions, how often does it work? Does it always work out? And he said, no, of course not. It doesn't, doesn't always work out. He said, that's not what motivates us. We don't, we don't get motivated because it always works out. He said, a lot of times it does. 
In 2016, they, sa they saved nearly 6,000 slaves in our world. 6,000 people who were enslaved in, the, in this world are now free. That's incredible. But then he said, the overwhelming thing about that is, though, the, the estimates are there are 40 million slaves in the world. We have so far to go. The odds seem so long that we'll accomplish our dream of a world that has no, no slaves. I said, so what keeps you going? Why do you, why do you keep doing it if, if it's not 100% success, if you don't know you're going to succeed and the odds seem so long, why do you keep going? He said, a few things. But he said, the number one thing, the thing we come back to over and over again, and it sounds simple, he said, but God clearly says, free the slaves. Like, that's what his word says. And so basically we're motivated by God's calling and God's character. That's it. That's what keeps us going. That's where we start. We don't start with odds of success. We start with who God is. That's why we do what we do. It says not because we're guaranteed success, but it's because God cares about people being free and God is trustworthy. One of the things they say at IJM a lot is to seek justice, we first have to seek the God of justice. Joseph had sought that God for his life. Remember, he was a righteous man. So Joseph moved first with clarity of God's character. He trusted God to be with him, God with us, Emmanuel, and he trusted God to be saving the world. The Lord saves those two names. He trusted that. He believed in that. Even though he didn't have all the information or didn't know how it would all turn out. Here's why this matters to us. We won't always have all the information either. This is, this is where Joseph's story hits our story. Because we're invited to the same thing. We're invited to follow God with what we know about him rather than wait until we know everything. And the alternative is what Martin Luther King Jr. called uh, practical atheism. It's a harsh term, but essentially what he talked about is he said, you may have an intellectual belief in God, but maybe lack movement in the right direction in response to that belief. That's what he would call practical atheism because it's easy sometimes to believe the right thing but not be moved to the right things. But Joseph said, my belief needs to lead to my actions and he believed that his faithful actions in the right direction, being, uh, being faithful to God, would somehow be a part of God's saving work in the world. He didn't know. He didn't know exactly how it would work or what part he was exactly playing, but he believed that it would be part of God's saving work. And he believed that his faithful movement wasn't just good for him, it was good for others as well. Our faithful movement isn't good for just us, it's good for others as well. So I, I don't know if she'll forgive you if you say sorry. I don't know if they'll say yes if you invite them to church. I don't know if they'll say thank you if you sacrifice for them. I don't know if you get into a Summit Connect group where you connect in Christ in relationships. I don't know if it'll lead to lifelong relationships. I don't know if your kids will notice if you put your cell phone down when you walk in the door after work so that you can look into their eyes. I don't know how soon it will get easy or if it will ever get easy if you stop trying to find things to escape your pain and you hurt and you, and you start dealing with those struggles. I don't know if your boss will notice if you work your tail off for every minute you're on the job. I don't know what you'll have to recreate, uh, rearrange to, to create time and, and space to actually 
rest or if you will even feel like it's worthwhile if you do. I don't know how it will turn out. I don't know the result of those things. I just know those things are worth it because I know the God who asks us to do them. So where do we go from here? Well, for some of us, you, you, you may say, well, look, like this, this seems like a good idea, like this trust thing and trusting God, and God seems to be faithful to his word. I mean, look, he, Jesus came into the world and he's doing this saving work. I, I've never really kind of, I've never trusted God that way. I don't really know where to start. Here, here would be my suggestion. If you wanna start trusting God, start with the two names. The two names are, are, are where it all starts. Do you believe or are you willing to consider that Jesus came to save people from everything that binds them up? That he came to save you from everything that binds you up? And do you believe or are you willing to believe that God loves you so much that the distance between you and him couldn't, couldn't last? He had to come to you and for you. Do you believe that that's possible? That's where you start trusting him. You start with the character of God. And for some of you, you maybe say, okay, well, yeah, I, I, I trust God, at least sometimes. Sometimes I trust God, or I did trust God like a long time ago, or, or but I'm kind of in and out. Maybe I'm not really sure if I trust him, or maybe if I'm just kind of like leaning on my own plans or whatever the case may be. Mostly, though, I just kind of go through life and hope for the best, and that kind of seems to be okay, but there also seems to kind of be something that's missing. Maybe I'm meant for, for more than just doing my best and seeing how it works out. Look, for me, maybe this is the most compelling rationale for why to get into God's word, why to get to know God through his word, why to get in relationships with people that can help you understand his word, who he is, who his character, uh, who he is in his character. Because it's quite possible that God either is or has or will very soon ask you to do something to be a part of his story of extending love and grace into this world until that's all there is. And it is absolutely worth having built up enough trust in him to say yes when he asks. Joseph said yes because he had built up enough trust in advance. When the angel greets Joseph, he didn't have all the information. He didn't know how it was gonna work out, but he knew the one who was asking so he was faithful to the part that he was asked to play. And he believed God would make good on his promise. His promise to save the world. His promise to bring hope and life and joy and light into a dark world. To undo all the pain and all the hurt and all the death. He believed God would be true to his word. Faith in that led to actions of trust in Joseph. And it can for us as well. So one last time, I'll repeat the invitation for us as we move through this Advent season and as we head out from here. Our invitation is to follow God with what we know about him rather than wait to follow him until we know everything. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the challenge of your word. Thank you for Joseph's story, for someone we know honestly little about, but, but we know the significance of his actions. Father God, I pray that you would give us clarity about what part we play in what you are doing in this world. 
I pray that you would give us a glimpse of, of, of your character and how trustworthy you are. And I pray that you would allow us to be people, give us the strength and the wisdom to be people who don't wait for all the variables to come together and all the information to line up so that we have a perfect comprehensive plan. But we're willing to trust you with what we know about you, about your love for people, about the grace you want to extend to this world that showed up in the form of Jesus being born. And knowing that about you, let that motivate us to extend that love and that grace into this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.